Today we come to verse 19 of chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 19. You'll remember that the chapters and verses assigned to the Scripture are not original. They are actually added just about a thousand years ago for ease. And aren't we glad? Uh, It's a a wonderful thing to be able to call out a verse and a chapter and and, uh, be able to turn there and find it. So it has served us wonderfully. It's one of God's tender graces to us. However, uh, it is not automatic that every break in uh, the, if you will, the teaching or speaking of these letters uh, occurs at the point of a chapter break. Here, the 19th verse of the 10th chapter, if I were assigning chapters, this would be the 11th chapter. But I'm not, so, but there is a break in what he's doing. As we have studied the book of Hebrews this year, uh, we've been reminded that uh, he cares deeply about their doctrinal understanding of the work of Christ and the application of the work of Christ to our own lives. He does not want us to simply believe things. Frankly, knowledge puffs up. And the fact that you're smart is of no value whatsoever. Unless, in the process of being smart, you become wise. And in biblical terms, wisdom has more the understanding of the application of knowledge than it does any sort of acquired information. So if you know how to send a man to the moon, you can do the math for that. That's wonderful. Praise God. But if you can't apply that in such a way as to serve God and serve your fellow man, uh, then I would suggest to you that it is in the application that we fail. So he has spent nine and a half chapters, here we come to the middle of the 10th chapter, making sure that we have great knowledge. He has explained how Jesus is better than the Old Testament, that the new covenant is, has come so that the old covenant has now, he uses this very word, is obsolete. He does not want the people of his day to retreat back to the old covenant. Because now that the new has come, the old is obsolete. So he spent nine and a half chapters drilling that into us and repeating himself several times for emphasis. But now here in the middle of the 10th chapter, he's going to turn and he's going to say, and this is my words, not his, but he's going to say, now so what? What difference does that make in your life? Because his concern, as we've already seen in chapter 4, saw it again in chapter 6, and we're going to see it next week in the paragraph we look at in the latter part of chapter 10, his concern is that his people have tasted this great understanding of who Jesus is and have become bored. Or have determined that Jesus is not really all he's cracked up to be or reported to be, or that others say he is. And they are threatening, therefore, to retreat from Jesus and go back to Judaism, go back to earthly things, 
that are but a shadow or a form of that which is real and true, that which is in glory. So because of that, he is constantly saying to them, don't do that. Don't retreat. Don't turn away or turn aside from Jesus. And so here he goes into that full bore, full steam ahead, right here, beginning in chapter 10, verse 19. You'll see the conjunction that begins the section. Let's read together just this one paragraph through verse 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, I just think uh, we can uh, highlight two things. They're uh, long things, but there's only two. I want you to note, first of all, that he encourages us to remember the ground or the foundation of our confidence. He uses that very word in verse 19, since we have this confidence. The word confidence is an important word to the writer of Hebrews. He uses that word in chapter 3. He uses that word in chapter 4. He uses that right here in verse 19, and he's going to use it again a little later in this chapter. Four times he uses the word confidence. I would ask you this morning, do you have confidence in Christ? If your confidence is something or someone other than Christ then you do not have the assurance of eternal life. You do not have the promise of forgiveness, and you do not have the promise of heaven. In short, if you die, you're not going to heaven. So remember the ground of your confidence. You'll note that he tells us that we are tempted to lose that confidence. He does so by repeating this word again and again and reminding us not to. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, let's make sure we do. Notice that he is very clear that the only ground for that confidence, the only foundation, the only reason you should be confident is because of the sacrifice of Christ. He has entered the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The only reason we have access to God, the only reason we can look to him and call him Abba, Father, is because of Jesus. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies and there sacrificed himself, shed his own blood. Chapter 9 tells us he acquired an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption. Therefore, it's not necessary for another priest like you or me to walk into the Holy of Holies annually as it was under the Old Covenant and make a sacrifice. That practice is obsolete. 
If you leave Jesus and go back to that, you would have no confidence except in your own mind. I think about it often. Every time I pass a a junkyard, a car junkyard, those, uh, those cars don't run. That's why they're there. Many of them have obviously been looted for the parts. And uh, not only do they not run, but they don't have a battery. They don't have a starter. They don't have a radiator. They don't have any number of things that will actually drive. Well, let's assume for the sake of argument that you have a wreck and your car is now rendered undrivable. And you decide that you're going to go and you're going to get in a car in a junkyard. I would ask you, what are the chances that's going to end with a happy ending? I need a car. There's one. I'll go sit in the seat. There's a steering wheel. There's an accelerator. There's an ignition. There may be even a key in it. The only problem is it doesn't run. It's not going to run. The purpose for which it's made has been replaced because it's not going to, it's not going to run. So it is in the Old Covenant. The old covenant is not going to run. It's not going to work. It's not going to play. And the reason is, is because Christ has entered the holy places by his eternal sacrifice, offering his eternal blood for your sins. Leaving Christ and going back to some broken down jalopy is not going to play. So remember the ground of your confidence is the sacrifice of Jesus. He uses a particular phrase in verse 20. It is the new and living way. Be careful in your understanding of new. He doesn't really mean here comparison new versus old. He really means new versus none. The old way never got anyone to heaven. Never got anyone access to God. The old way never got you or me, someone not named the high priest of Israel, into the holy of holies. The old way is no way. The blood of bulls and goats did not and do not and never will take away sin. So be confident, therefore, in Christ. He gives a second reason for that ground, verse 21 since we have a great high priest over the house of God. This is an issue of competence. He's comparing, again, the new way, Jesus, versus the old way, which is not a way at all, the way of a broken high priest, a high priest whose first sacrifice in the Holy of Holies was for his own sins. He had to go in there twice take sacrifice and, and, and make for himself, and then offer a sacrifice for the people. He is a high priest. He is the high priest of Israel, but he is not the great high priest who need not bring sacrifice for his own sin. Only Jesus is doing that. Many, uh, much ink has been spilt offering commentary on these particular verses. I uh, appreciate Uh, those who compare, on the one hand, our confidence in in verse 19 and 20 to the competence of Jesus in verse 21. I like that. That 
the, the confidence and competence work together to boost or bolster our confidence. But uh, as preachers are wont to come up with alliterative uh, words, someone has also suggested that our confidence is based on access. We have access into the Holy of Holies, and it is grounded in the advocacy of Jesus. I don't know. If you like that, that's, that's going to be fine. But whatever helps you to understand what's going on here, he is reminding us that our confidence is in Christ. He has secured an eternal redemption, and there is no plan B. So I would ask this question of you this morning. Does this news, does this information, does this knowledge transform your life? What do you do with that news? That Jesus has now entered into the holy place and by his own body given you eternal access, giving you a relationship with God, giving you access to God. What difference does that make in your life? How does that translate? How does it fuel your life, fuel your worship, fuel your thanksgiving? Are you a grateful person, grateful to God? in love with God, rejoicing in God, holding to God, clinging to God, relying upon God, depending upon God? Is it true that others can see in you real faith? Real faith. Because you know that this God of gods is your God. That this God of God desires you to come to him. And that when you cry out to him, he hears He listens, he cares, and he is moved. Does this change your life? Do you have confidence? I think of the things in my life that I would say I have confidence in. And those things give me security. Those things give me strength. Those things take away anxiety. Those things take away frustration. I have confidence in these things. And whatever they may be, and and, and some of them are very important, some of them are not as important. I have confidence this morning when I was in the shower that the hot water was going to be hot. Small thing, but it's a thing. I have confidence in a lot of things that are on the main, pretty insignificant. But all of these things, all of these things provide foundation for my life, and they do in yours. But ultimately, there are going to be some challenges in your life that rise to a level that's a little larger than whether or not the hot water is hot. And one of those, friend, is death. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for hoping, trusting, looking beyond death for yourself and for your loved ones? Invariably, I'm reminded, I was talking with someone this week who I'm not sure is a believer, and he was discussing about the near fatal accident of his son recently, a tragedy. It it wasn't fatal. The boy walked away, praise God. But he was talking about that, talking about how that he was looking and rejoicing that God had spared his son. But his last comment to me was, but if God had not spared my son, that would have not ended well. Hmm. Now, I understand 
I understand the sorrow and pain associated with that. I do. I'm a pastor. But friend, I would ask you, is your faith greater than death? Is your hope in Jesus greater than death? Is your confidence in Jesus greater than death? Well, dear friend, the Word of God tells us to trust in Christ even more than life itself. To fear not the one who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can abandon the soul to hell. The greatest tragedy is not that you die. The greatest tragedy is that you die without hope. But because we have hope, even death is not our ultimate enemy. Even death, as sorrowful and tragic as it is, painful as it is, hard as it is, real as it is, even death is answered by our confidence in Christ. We long for the resurrection. We long for the resurrection of our loved ones, and we long for the resurrection of our own lives and bodies one day. And our confidence in Christ is the only reason we have any hope of such. I would ask you today, what difference does it make that you have confidence in Christ and the work of Christ? I would suggest it has every confidence or none at all. He goes to a second thing, beginning in verse 22, and there's a series of verbs here that stand out. Uh, I will tell you that pastors are cautioned early on in their preaching uh, training to pay attention to the imperatives, pay attention to the commands. When the Bible commands something, that's what you got to emphasize. You want to understand the Bible? Follow the verbs. Follow the verbs. And in this case, there's three very important verbs. We'll see them in verses 22, 3, and 4. I would simply summarize them by simply saying, remember the responsibility of your new status before God. Don't forget your confidence and then remember the responsibility of your new status before God. You see, that's what he's trying to do. He's turned a corner here in this particular paragraph, and he's beginning to apply your status. If you do have access to Christ, then remember the responsibility of this new status. What difference does it make in your life? Notice he has three verbs. Notice in verse 22, you have the phrase, draw near. I've underlined these three phrases in my Bible, and uh, if you have a mind to, I would recommend it. Verse 23, hold fast. Draw near. Now 23, hold fast. Then in verse 24, stir up. All of these are imperatives. The word draw near obviously, encourages us to draw near to Christ, draw near to God through Christ. This is the nature of God, and that is that he would draw near with a true heart. Remember, the problem with the old covenant is it was suitable for the cleansing of the outer man, but not suitable for the cleansing of the inner man. Thus, in the Old Testament, in the prophets, Jeremiah 31 these particular words stand out. Verse 33. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice that God intended from the beginning that he would ultimately replace the old covenant with the new, and that the new covenant in the work of Jesus Christ would transform your heart, cleanse the conscience, not the external you making you clean, but the internal you making you new. Thus, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must have a new heart. Nicodemus said, I don't get it. I don't understand. And Jesus said, are you not a teacher of the Jews and you don't understand? You don't understand Jeremiah 31? You don't? You don't understand Ezekiel 36. Hear these words in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the Jews, and you don't know Ezekiel 36? That God intends to do a new thing. And that God intends to do that through his son, the Lord Christ, the Messiah. Therefore, he says, verse 22 of Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see? He is telling us that we have a relationship that permits and invites. And let me go one more expects us to draw near. I think of this often. We have, as you know, three girls, and we love them, thankful for them, uh, and they love us, and they call a lot. They live a long way away, and so we're, we're calling, they're calling, and we, we, we stay in touch. Thanks be to God for the technology that permits that. But there are many who have adult children who don't call and don't check in. And in fact, we might even call them estranged. And I've talked with enough of those parents to know that what would really change their lives is if there would be a breakthrough. And the one who is distant would draw near. I remind you that our God has invited us to draw near. And that he expects us to draw near. You know, if it's in the human heart to expect that of your adult children, should it not be in God's heart? We are grateful that God has invited and now has commanded us an imperative verb to draw near because we have access. Let us not squander or waste this privilege. There's a second thing he says, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast the confession 
Again, he uses uh, that particular phrase, confession, again and again throughout the book of Hebrews. But hear these words in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Apparently, he wants to say it again and again and again. Make sure that you hold fast your confession in Christ. Our full and final salvation is future. We know this to be the case. We know that we are not yet fully saved, finally saved. We labor in this body of sin and death. We labor in this world that is broken. And death continues and hardship continues, and sorrow continues, and suffering continues. But there is a day coming, a day promised, friend, through the work of Christ, where there will be no more dying, crying, sorrow. On that day, and, and not before that day, will our salvation be finally complete. And until that day, hold on. Hold fast. Your hope is in His promise. Your hope is in His faithfulness. Your hope is in the credibility of His words and His past faithfulness. Our hope is in Christ and in the work of God to continue. Therefore, we must hold fast. We must not loosen our grip on Jesus. We must not turn aside to something else. We, we must, must not become enamored with other things. I'm often reminded of this as you read through uh, the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with his people. They enter into covenant, and then the prophet invariably says, God's going to keep his, but you won't. Happens with Moses, happens with Joshua, happens again and again. God's going to keep his covenant, but you won't. And when you don't, it will be because, remember that Joshua said it explicitly, it, it will be because you will eventually, you'll go into the promised land and you'll drink from wells you did not dig. You will move into houses that you did not build and you will acquire livestock that you did not raise and you will forget God. God will make you rich. God will make you prosperous. God will bless you, bless you, bless you. And you will forget him. Now, that is not the practice of holding fast. No matter what comes, good or bad, rich or poor, sickness and in health, for better or worse. Hold fast, brothers. There is not a better way. There is not a different way. There is not a way that will bring life. Only this way. The way of Christ. And then thirdly, he says in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stir up 
The word uh, in the King James here is the word provoke. Provoke. It, uh, it is a word that uh, connotes high energy. It, it is not a minor word. It, uh, it, it means to, to put effort into it. He uses a, a similar word in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. The same word, stir up. Exhort, stir up, provoke. But provoke one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That in chapter 3 of Hebrews. So again, he returns to this message. Stir up one another. Provoke one another. Not negatively, not to argument or division. On the contrary, the Bible has much to say that in fact, that is absolutely an error. But what we are to do is to stir up one another to love and good works. Love and good deeds. Now what hinders our provoking one another to love one another? The answer is chapter 3, sin. Be careful because of the deceitfulness of sin. The problem is me. The problem is you. The problem is us. We are sinners, and we are selfish. And the minute we think we've got it together, be careful, because we're about to slip and fall. And the minute we think we're not sinning, be careful, because the enemy is prowling about like a lion seeking those whom he may devour. The enemy of souls is after us. So consider. Consider. That word consider means to look with intensity. To look with intensity. He uses that particular word in James chapter 1, verse 23. You're familiar with this. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently. That's the adverbial form of this word consider, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. Some of you this morning looked intently at yourself in a mirror. Some of you, not so much, pretty obvious. <laughs> but some of you did. We're thankful. Praise God for that. But you know what that means. You look there, and you, you, you're looking for this and that, and whatever you're looking for, you know, hair, makeup, uh, you know, whiskers, whatever you're doing, looking in the mirror, evaluating wrinkles, crow's feet, and all that stuff. You're looking intently. It's not a minor glance. What does he say in Hebrews 10, verse 24? Let us consider intently how to stir up one another to love and good works. Why don't we do that any better than we do? Well, a couple of obvious reasons. There are many, I'm sure. One, as I've already mentioned, sin. We're just sinful. We're just sinful. We have a tendency to judge other people. We say, you know, there's a fellow who's falling behind. There's a fellow who's kind of out of step. There's a fellow who's kind of, you know, wheel off in the ditch. His life's kind of, you know, going to pot. And, you know, you know, you reap what you sow, buddy. 
Just the deceitfulness of sin. Where's your compassion? Where's your kindness? Where's your long-suffering toward a brother who may not see what you see? I mean, you, you may have eyes to see that he doesn't see. Sometimes it's always good to have someone come alongside and say, look, I, I know you probably don't understand what's really happening here, but this is the way I see it, and I love you, and I care about you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But we're judgmental instead of helpful. There's a second reason it stands out to me, and that is because we are completely absorbed with ourselves. I don't have time for provoking you, considering you, stimulating you. I don't have time for that. I am busy with me. It's about me. Years ago, I read a book that challenged me. It was one of those midlife books. I, 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 several men in the church have read it, so if I named it, they would say, yeah, 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 it's a good book. But there was one phrase in the entire book that stood out to me. Because the writer of the book, the author, said, at least 97% of every thought you have in any day is about you. 97%. Now, first of all, how do you measure that? I mean, who, who is the guy that sat for that evaluation? I don't know if that's accurate or not. But I began, I immediately pushed back on that. I said, no way. I'm more caring, I'm more altruistic, I'm more loving, I'm more compassionate. I am, I am, I am. Then I started creating a scorecard in my mind. I don't know what my score would be, and you don't know what yours would be either, because we'd all have a tendency to grade ourselves up. We'd lie, in other words. But I will tell you, friend, that the more I stare at that, the more I stare at that, the more I stare at that, the more I realize it's very hard for me to take my eyes off of me. And since I hang out with you, I'd say you're no better than me. Lovingly, of course. And that's the root for so many things. It's, it's the root for sin, it's the soil from which virtually every sin I know grows. It is our self-absorption, our self-focus, our self-interest. And here's a command in Hebrews 10, 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how to provoke one another. Let us consider how to lean into people. For the purpose of provoking them to good works, helping people, loving people, serving people. Now, you'll note specifically, he gives you a way to do that. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together, not to neglecting, the, the verb here translated meet together is the word for assembly. Not neglecting to church, ecclesia. It's the word for gathering. So here we are this morning. Gathered. Because that's what you do. When you're a Christian, you gather. You gather with other Christians. And all across the world today, Christians are gathering. And it's good. It's right. It's honorable. It's of the Lord. It's a witness for the Lord. It's all those things. 
It's, it's part of my duty to God. It's part of my duty to my fellow man. So there is an aspect that is true, that, that church is the right thing to do. And independent of anybody else who may be there or not there, church is the right thing to do. Why? Because we are here for God. God has come and Jesus has birthed the church and has created this idea. It's not my idea or your idea, and you don't have a right, therefore, to jettison it. I don't need the church. Really? Really? So you don't have a sin problem? But you'll note that's not the argument he gives here. He doesn't say, you need to come to church for you. People say it all the time, I'm going to go find a church where the preaching is better. Well, I've been a, a member in my life, Susan and I have been a member in our married life. How many churches we've been a member of? Six. Six churches. Three times the preacher was outstanding. I'm kidding. Those of you who don't know me, I'm just kidding. All right? But the other three times, the preaching was not me. And even if the preaching wasn't terribly good, do you know, I got saved. I got saved in a church where the preaching wasn't very good. I was licensed to the ministry in a church where the preaching wasn't very, wasn't very good. I was ordained to the ministry. I was sent off to seminary in a church where the preaching wasn't very good. And let's leave preaching behind and let's talk about music, right? You know how many music people I've worked with? More than I care to remember. I, I just friended a guy on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that was a part of our ministry way, way, way back. And Susan didn't even remember him. Buried him. <laughs> you know, I don't even know that guy because I didn't have a lot to do with him. I, we were young, and she had three kids at home under the age of six, and, you know, there's a lot going on, and okay. I mean, there's all kinds of, but, you know, people say, you know, church has got lousy preaching, lousy music. I'm going to move on. Okay, maybe that's exactly what you ought to do. And maybe you ought to stay in there and realize that if you can be a light in the midst of what you believe is darkness, you can be a pretty bright light for people who need help. Because you notice the logic he uses here? Verse 25. Don't fail to assemble. Don't fail to meet for church, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. Encouraging one another. It turns out you're supposed to be here for everybody else. Now, this is a big room. So there's a lot of people over here who don't have a lot of contact with these people over here. All right? You folks are strangers to these people over here. And likewise. But... Believe you me, the fact that you're sitting there and covering up those green chairs, at least 12 of you, is important to these people over here. And the fact that you're over here covering up, I don't know, 18 green chairs is important to these people over here. You, you realize just being here is an encouragement. I went to church and nobody was there. Have you ever said that? You ever heard anybody say that? 
Just, just being there is an encouragement because it's a reminder that you're not alone. That in the walk of Christ and the fight against sin and the struggle against the devil in your life, you're not alone. And that there are other people with you. You don't know them well. Maybe you don't know them at all. But you know they know who you know. And they believe what you believe. And that motivates you. That gives you lift in your life. And then, of course, you get to know people. If you're here, you get to know people. And if you're not here, you don't. We kidded with a lot of people during the pandemic outage. Ten weeks we didn't meet. We kidded with a lot of people said, Pastor, it's going to be hard to come back. You know, it's been real nice sitting on the couch in my pajamas. Do you know preachers all across America are afraid that some of you are actually serious? Can I speak to you folks on the internet right now? We miss you. We need you. We need you. You say, well, I don't need you. That's not what this says. This says, we need you. Church attendance is at an all-time low across the nation. We might say, well, of course, it's pandemic. And uh, I want to say from the outset that high-risk individuals should stay away for the time being. But this is temporary, isn't it? (laughs) But that doesn't stop pastors and pundits from speaking and reflecting and worrying i'll tell you though even before march 15th when we closed church participation across the country was in decline and it wasn't for obvious reasons like persecution or cultural pressures instead the more likely reasons for church decline were worldliness idolatry materialism apathy and perhaps even apostasy. It'll be a while before high-risk individuals will return to church involvement. We absolutely understand that. But what about the rest of us? We've kind of grown comfortable, haven't we? Comfortable with doing little instead of doing more. Doing enough, but not too much. Having a little church and not too much church. I will tell you, friend... That's not the exhortation of Scripture. As you would expect of me, because you know me, I'm a firm believer in the providence of God and His faithfulness to His people, the church. So what is God up to in these days? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know specifically, but I do know generally, God is up to the same thing today He's always been up to, which is advancing His name, advancing His Son, advancing His kingdom on earth. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the will of God. And that's the work of God. Right now, he's advancing his kingdom. You may not recognize it, but I pray God would give us all eyes to see. God is advancing his kingdom through his bride, the church. But his bride needs encouragement. Sin is pervasive. And the enemy of souls is on the prowl. He's seeking to pick off the faithful and destroy the church in the process. But we are not ignorant or blind or deaf or unlearned. We must not loosen our grip on the church. The very thing that God has designed to boost us, to give us strength. Instead, his answer is stir it up. Stir up one another. Encourage one another. Find ways to love well, to serve well, even in difficult times. 
I've been very proud of our church during the pandemic, loving care and caring for one another, serving one another. So many folks are afraid. But somebody, dare I say you, friend, needs to stand up and say, my brother needs help. My brother needs encouragement. My brother needs my life, my hands, my feet, my words. My brother needs me, and I will lean in instead of fall back. What are we to do? We must encourage all the more because the day is drawing nearer and nearer, verse 25. It may be popular to devalue the church in other places and in other cultural expressions, but God sent his only begotten son to create this body. Think of that. God could not invest more highly in this body than he already has. I'm not about to poke my finger in his eye and say, that's not for me. Time is short. The day is coming. And it's closer than it's ever been. Let's get busy not doing a new thing. Let's get busy doing the old things. The old things of joining together with people. Not forsaking people. But encouraging one another. Because Jesus' second coming is closer than it's ever been. Time is short. Soon enough, we will see, not with these eyes, but with better eyes, that the way of God is right and true. We welcome you to faithfulness. Let us consider how to stimulate and provoke and encourage one another until the day of the Lord. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you have cared for us, shepherded us, and continue to do so even now. Thank you. We rejoice in your kindness. We rejoice in your love. We rejoice in your forgiveness. We rejoice in your mercy. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Let us hold fast and let us stir up as we draw near to Christ. Thank you for this church for the joy of serving together. You're a great God. We love you so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.